1: that all right and all right so we'll start at the beginning so we were just talking and um you know a lot of fans now i mean slider is such a an important part of our our history but fans i think a lot of fans might not know that there uh there was someone before actually there were two before slider three i think there were three mascots three yeah. yeah and um you know we're sitting down with with one of three and i guess the the big question and we were kind of mentioning it is how does uh, how does one become the, the baseball bug? How did you hear about it? How to you know thoughts, concerns, excitement, the whole uh, whole nine yards?
0: Right. Well, you know, back in the late seventies, there was a uh, a woman who dressed up as a duck, and she ran around the stadium. And, and, and from what I've been told, she kind of blew out both knees, and and they wanted to move on from that for a new mascot. At the time, after I graduated from my, I went to Dayton University, and I. I uh, went to Cleveland State for my MBA and I got a job as a graduate assistant in a department that basically set up for events at the campus. Could set up for two people meeting like you and I are here or for commencement or anything in between. And so my boss at the time was a guy by the name of Ned Welk. And at that time with the, with the Indians, they had a stadium field announcer and he actually sat in a kind of like a cage type device right next to the home dugout, okay, on the field. And he would be the one that would say, you know, uh, next up, third baseman, Toby Hera, you know, things like that. So he was my boss at, at, at uh, Cleveland State. And he said, you know, Ron, they're looking for a new mascot. I think you'd be perfect for the job. They're interviewing a bunch of people. And so um, I think you should go interview for it. I could set you up with the interviews, you know. And I said, okay. You know, I came home. I told my father at the time. And he said, you know, don't get your hopes up. I know they're interviewing a lot of people. I go, yeah. I said, but you know, I have as good a chance as anybody. I knew a little bit of gymnastics. Um, as it turned out, that first year costume was was not really, uh, you could barely walk around in it. Um, but anyway, um, so I went down there, interviewed a bunch of people. And uh, one of them was Bobby DiBiasio, who, who, who works there still, you know, to this day, which is crazy and phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Anyway, so I interviewed with all these people and uh, about a month later, I got a call from a gentleman by the name of Joe Bick, who was the assistant to the president, and president at the time being Gabe Paul. And, um, and he, he was on the phone, Ron, Joe Bick, Indians. I go, hey, Mr. Bick, how you doing? And he said, well, Ron, can I tell you? He goes, you're the biggest we could find. You want the job? <laughs> and so I've never been as glad as I was to be called that. And, and, and of course, I said yes. I found out later that the reason they hired me is they thought that I was the most honest person because everybody pretty much who applied had some physical ability or what have you. So um, that's how I initially um, got the job.
1: And you had no previous mascotting background or anything? It was just uh, kind of see where this goes?
0: No, I, I basically played sports before that. In high school played football at Ignatius and then went to college. and. Uh, Dayton, and I didn't play intercollegiate sports, but a lot of intramurals down there. They had football, you know, softball. I even did water polo sitting in an in a, in a inner tube in the water, and, yeah, that wasn't a good one for me. But anyway, um, so, no, I had no no previous experience.
1: And you were hired four seasons started. So do you remember your first game or, or what the direction was? Did they oh, give yeah. you, like, guidelines? <laughs> or was it just, here's a costume? Actually, even your first time seeing that costume, do you remember what, so, did you know it, what it looked like? Auditioning, or was it? A? Uh, no,
0: okay. I had no idea. And um, so what had happened was shortly after, and so I got the job in late uh, 1979. Okay, and it was going to start the 1980 season, which was you know Aprilish, so to speak, in 1980. So I went with uh, people from the front office. I couldn't tell you who exactly it was. It was some different people all the time, and we went to a place called Scallon Productions. And Scotland Productions was charged by the Indians with creating this costume. And the idea they came up with uh, was uh, the baseball bug. And sometimes people go, well, that's a stupid idea. Why would they come up with that? Well, the tagline, you're too young, but the tagline at the time, for those who remember, which is not many people, and even people that lived back then, was Indian fever get bitten by the bug. That was the tagline for the Cleveland Indians. And so they said, okay, Let's make it a bug. You know, in many mascots. Uh, like I talked a lot with the Philly Fanatic, who was a, really a standard mascot in, in Philadelphia for a few years prior. And I believe they had even won a World Series at some point. And, and um, his only advice to me initially was never go in the upper deck. Because I went in the upper deck and they hung me over by my feet over the railing, you know. I said, yeah, I think I'll stay away from the upper deck, you know. And so anyway, I went with them to the uh, production facilities for the costume and they started building this costume and as it took shape uh, they they made it so it kind of fit me although it was a big huge head with this huge body with hoops inside of it uh, like a a pair of furry pants and humongous shoes I would actually wear my own shoes inside of those okay and um, so I remember the day before the first game, I was beyond stressed out and nervous because here I am, you know, Cleveland at the time, you know, at the old stadium, there'd be 70,000 the first game, you know, 12,000 the second game, but 70,000 the first game. And so I remember sitting in there and just, I'm in the dugout, and I'm looking at all these guys who I've admired for several years, you know, the Toby Harris, the Rick Mannings, the Dwayne Kuypers, uh, uh, Mike Hargrove was on the team, you know. So uh, these were all like guys that I really admire, you know. And, um, and so they announced, and you know how they all go out in the front, and they said, now the new mascot, the baseball bug, and I wander out there, you know, in front of all these people, and i uh, you, know, um, you know, I think I was gonna pass out or something, you know. So that was the first game, and that was uh, beginning of April, I believe, April something, um, maybe mid-April, because sometimes they did the first couple weeks in southern cities because, you know, Cleveland weather in the beginning of April uh, sometimes can be challenging, let's put it that way. And um, so that was what I remember of the very first game that I, um, and I just kind of wandered around and, you know, visited with the fans and high-fiving and there's these big furry gloves. And so, you know, when people asked you to sign an autograph, it was like uh, problematic sometimes. Especially when it was a kid, kid and I loved the kids, and they, they loved it. and. Um, you know, but you'd have a kid come and ask you to sign an autograph in the rain and he's got a leather glove and a pencil. (laughs) Try signing something like that. And so, um, but it was, it was, uh, mostly fun, but very, um, very taxing physically.
1: Were you required to be at every game? I mean, was it something, was it fit your schedule or was it a- Every
0: game. Okay. I had to be at every game. I had to be, um, they had some promotions. I set most of those up, believe it or not myself. Um, so I was kind of a promotion guy and a, and a mascot guy at the same time. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I can't recall if it was the first year or the second year because maybe we'll get to that in a second, but the second year costume was very different than the first year. Um, but it was the end of the season and you know there were some rainout games, or at least one rainout game was never, was never a makeup game. Okay. So at the end of the season, what they did in baseball, they probably do that today, is they would say, okay, if there's a, a game out there that needs to be made up, that would affect somehow the playoff race, you even though it means nothing to your team, because the Indians were, you know, not, they were toward the bottom of the barrel, let's put it that way at the time. Um, and uh, you had to play that game. So I remember. To one, I think this was the second year, actually, and I went, remember going to that game and asking him in the front office, guys, do I really need to, you know, because I'd been through 80-some games already, and it was just like, oh, man, do I still need to do this? Yeah, Ron, you need to go out there. You need, I said, okay, that's cool, you know, and I found a guy I knew from high school and sit down with him for a while. <laughs> there was like 400 people in the stands or something like that, but I was out there, you know, and I wanted to honor my my contract and, and, and uh, that type of thing, so... Yeah, every game.
1: I think I remember Bobby talking about that game, actually. It was like 400 people in the stands or something like that. Oh,
0: yeah. It was like everybody moved down, you know. You sit
1: wherever you want. Did uh, that first game, did you have friends and family come out? And were they excited for you or is it just like, there's my son, the mascot? Or
0: uh? Yeah, you know, um, they were excited. Uh, they were there, you know. Actually, not as many people as were at the captain's game a few weeks ago for me when they— honored me for the, uh, being the mascot, but, uh, over 50 people there for me that, that just, you know, and, um, so, but yeah, they had come out and, um, my father, God rest his soul. Um, he, he would be so into all of this, like that captain's game. Oh my God. I would have brought him down on the field with me and it would have made his lifetime, you know, cause he would say, this is my son. You know, he's the baseball bug. They go, Dad, quiet already, quiet about that. Because I did not go and broadcast that to a lot of people. I still don't really. You know, My next door neighbor uh, just a few weeks ago when I did the cat, they go, and they've been my next door neighbor for 25 years. We never knew you used to be the mascot for the Indians. <laughs> I go, well, I don't go around bragging about it or anything, you know. So um, yeah, they, they, they were there.
1: And throughout that first season, then were you able to develop a, uh, a shtick, or uh, I mean, or is it just kind of mingling? I mean, mascots now, you know, the hot dogs we have and slider—they they get really involved in a lot of things. You have races, this and that. Was there anything special that the bug did besides maybe the gymnastics later on? Um,
0: so the first year, um, it was it was difficult to do a lot of other things. I mean, I jump up on the dugout, I move this skirt up and down, kind of like this, and like to get the people going, and um, <laughs> one of, you know, and yeah, that was the second year okay. mascot, and uh, I don't know if you have a picture. That's the first one there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the first one, okay. so you could imagine walking around in that thing. Uh, there was the baseballs were antennas, they lasted about two games, and somebody pulled them off, and I said, don't even bother putting them on, because they are just going to pull them off again, you know. And I always said to people that any given baseball game, there's everything from a nun to a person who just got out of prison yesterday, you know, and everything in between. So it was a very eclectic and and, and uh, you know homogeneous crowd out there. It was really uh, really something else, you know, all kind of. But the kids were great, you know, um, and the people too, you know, they love to have their picture taken uh, with with the mascot. And um, but as far as shtick, um, the first year not as much. Because I couldn't like, I tried to do like flips off of a a mini trampoline with the cheerleaders, you know, because they had Cleveland State cheerleaders at the time were at the games and they, they, uh, they call them the ball girls, you know, they did the ball, you know, caught the foul balls and everything. And then they would do flips. They were, they were, like I say, cheerleaders at Cleveland State. So I did some shtick with them a little bit. Um, Got called to the principal's office one time, which was Gabe Paul. And he says, Ron, you can't do some of the stuff you do to the cheerleaders it looks too suggestive. And I'm like, I didn't know what he was talking about because there was nothing there, you know. Um, but they, you know, they try to rein you in a little bit. And um, so I would, uh, you know, we just go have some shtick with them. It was all in good, good fun. And uh, but other than that, it was tough, at least that first year. Now the second year was a totally different story. So.
1: Um, did you interact with with John Adams on the Bleachers or? You know what,
0: Uh, not really, not really, because he, I really never, I met him a few times, you know, um, but he was way out, like you say, in the bleachers and I wasn't, you know, and I never walked through the bleachers because it was just, there weren't always as many people out there. And, you know, I kind of stayed mostly between um, the dugouts and up, in where most of the people were sitting. I'd venture out a little bit further each time, but, and I did not go to the upper deck because first of all, they gave me a bodyguard, uh, at first. And then, um, you know, then they said, ah, you don't need one anymore. And so, you know, I was like, okay. Um, so I really did not, uh, interact a lot with John, you know.
1: Were you pretty, you mentioned some of the marketing things, were you pretty active then in the community? Pretty quiet. And I found newspaper articles saying the baseball bug will be with Bob Feller signing autographs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was, um, that was some of my favorite part. I used to do community events and, um, I actually have some, some, um, letters from children, you know, uh, I don't know if you want to bring those out now or whatever, but, um, yeah, they would write me notes and, and they'd send me things and, you know, I'm from the XYZ Baseball League, you were over with us, you know, and uh, yeah, Westgate Mall, I do remember that. Um, I don't know what year this was. It was
1: 1981.
0: Yeah, so this was the second year also. Um, the thing kind of caught fire as it went along and so there was much more of the second year and I have many more stories the second year than the first year, but the first year was just basically getting acclimated and um, you know trying to uh, not pass out when you wear this costume.
1: How'd you persuade the club to get you a new costume then? Did you just tell them it wasn't functional? I mean, it so, cheap.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons that they hired me was so I could do some more theatrics and type of things like that. So if you look at this first costume, and not much you can do in that right. thing, okay? and. Um, So then I came to them and I said, and they said, you know, is there anything we could do to help you out? Uh, We noticed this thing's very cumbersome. I said, yeah. I said, I really, you know, I said, I just don't think that this thing is really lends itself to any activities that you can do, you know. And um, and so then we got together. We went back out to Scotland Productions, and um, this was in the off season uh, between '80 and '81. And they said, let's make something that he can you know get around in more and he can do some more things. And so they came up with the second year costume, which was basically a bodysuit all the way down and a head. Okay. okay. And the head was built off a bicycle helmet. Okay. And so they did that and they fitted it to me and everything. The Jersey could come off. And actually this first year, t- this costume didn't necessarily fit in my parents' washing machine, okay. So Cy Baak who was the, uh, the equipment manager at the time he used to wash it for me in the clubs in the in, in the uh, in the in the clubhouse and their big day these humongous wash machines and dryers as you can imagine and he would wash the thing for me you know and he was another good guy you know but Cy would do that and so uh, but the second year this could fit my parents uh my parents uh, wash machine and it was just much more amenable to me doing.
1: A lot of different things. Looks like you get better gloves too. And so, did you see all the eye holes in there? Then the eyes were. Secret? I
0: did. Oh, okay. I did. Yeah, I saw actually both of these. I saw the eye holes. Pretty Believe good, it or not, this one too. This one not as good. This one was really good. You know, I mean, listen. You know, when you play football, you got to wear the helmet yeah. with the thing, you know, and and face mask. And so, I was kind of used to that from years before. And so, it wasn't too bad. It gave me pretty good peripheral vision, and. Um, and a lot of mobility, and the shoes were a lot smaller. The gloves were almost like women's yeah. long gloves, you know, like like uh, cocktail gloves or what do you call them? And they were red, and so I could sign a lot easier, okay. um, shake hands with people a lot easier, and and so yeah, yeah, those were those were a little fuzzier. So that one was was really more uh, akin to being able to do different theatrics, and I could get into some of those that I did the second year, which are
1: Kroger Fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you um? Did you have your own locker room, or did you you didn't change in the clubhouse or anything? Did you? Or? No.
0: So at the time, the Cleveland Stadium had, um, you know, it was the locker room where the players changed. The, the the tribe players changed in the locker room. If you would go right upstairs, and it was still within the main locker room door, and they had a police officer there, and I became friends with him. I can't remember his name now, but he was always there and would let me in. And, uh, and I would go upstairs. Once in a while, I'd come downstairs and, you know, um, but I'd go upstairs and there was an auxiliary locker room. And the reason they had that up there is because, you know, the Browns also used this stadium. And prior to the season, as you know, uh, they had more than the 53-man roster or what have you. They might have had 90 guys going out for the team. And so they needed more than just the regular locker room. So some of the guys would have to go upstairs and they had lockers up there. They had showers up there and things like that. And so that's where I would change and keep all my my um I'd keep all my clothing during the game, and uh I'd actually take the costume home with me every night because I didn't want you know if that thing gets stolen or something, somehow I don't know how that would happen, but that's no there's no replacement costume, you know what I mean so uh I would take that home. plus I pretty much washed it like every couple three nights and uh, but that's where I would change and once in a while, the ball players came up there. Some of them would come up there with the bat boys, and they would be pitching them like on a fungo bat, and the bat boys would be hitting it and everything. And so, I mean, these are 20-some-year-old guys, you know, so they like to have some fun too.
1: So the guys pretty receptive to you then, the players?
0: You know what, Jeremy, I got to tell you, and I'm not just saying this, um, a, a, a finer group of guys and a nicer group of guys with maybe one or two exceptions out of, you know, 25, 30 guys, phenomenal. Phenomenal people. I mean, you know, they're obviously high-level athletes, but they were receptive to me, and and, and so much so that this first year with this costume, um, there was a game. <laughs> there was a game that was raining, and so we're all standing in the dugout. And um, Joe Charbonneau, who in 1980 was the Rookie of the Year, was the Indians player. Um, he actually put on my costume just the top half of it, and walked around on the field. So you see this guy with this costume on walking around in the rain with Indian's pants on and cleats, you know. And um, and then I would do things like, uh, I remember Hargrove one time was playing first base and and I think this was the second year and I asked him beforehand, I said, Mike, can I, you know, can I like throw a couple of the grounders and catch him? He goes, yeah, sure. He'd come out there, you know. and. Prior to the game, he's throwing a grounder. I get out there, he gives me his mitt. And I throw a grounder, of course, being the ham that I am. The first one that the first guy throws at me, I let hit me in the chest, and I fell backward, you know. so um, So they were really amenable to it. At the time also, particularly the second year, I was allowed to go onto the field, okay, during a game. As long as play wasn't in there. So, for example, when a guy hit a home run, I was allowed to run to the plate and give him a... I think it was a low five at the time, um, and slapped my hand. So when they hit, hit a home run, I ran out there. I don't think you can do that no. today. <coughs> but mascotting is very different today than it was back then, you know. Um, other things, I mean, I, um, one of the routines that I did was uh, I would come out, and I had made myself an apron, and I had a shower cap on. And I'd go up on the dugout in between some of the innings, and I'd have a bucket full of confetti, okay, and I had a big rag. I would find a bald guy in the front row, and I'd go down there, and I would shine his head like this, you know. People love this stuff. And then I would be walking, and, you know, you've seen the stick before. You you have, like, fake fall, and then this stuff would go flying, and it was confetti, it was in water, you know. Um, When somebody stole a base— I would get up on the dugout and I would go back and forth like you know la Belushi and Animal House, and I would run down the dugout and I would slide and I would slide off the dugout into the pit, okay, and um, yeah, I'd beat my body up like that, you know. Um, so I would do things like that. Can um, I ever get
1: hurt? I mean, ever? I did not.
0: Okay. I never got hurt, um, and uh, which is kind of miraculous with some of this. Maybe there's a lot of padding. Uh, there was one incident where, um, and I'm, I can't remember, you know, you're dealing with a 67-year-old guy looking back 40-some years ago, where I, um, I don't know if it was the first year or the second year, I went up, we were playing the Yankees, and um, Reggie Jackson was up. And Reggie Jackson strikes out. And so I turn around and lift my back of my skirt, there. there's a furry yeah. butt there, right? And I shook it at him, and then I went like this, like I'm making a big crying uh, crying motion, and um, uh, George Steinbrenner filed a protest with the American League office, and basically up to the principal's office I went after that one. He says, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner didn't like that. Um, it was an it was in that exact game because it was afterward after he filed this protest and he probably talked to our front office and said I don't want that guy on the dugout or on the field. Keep him in the stands during any time we play you guys. So I was banned to the stands during all Yankee games, and um, but I got my licks in already <laughs> for that. So that was uh, that was kind of funny, actually. You know, we were also one time we were playing. I think it was the Angels. I can't remember who the manager was, but he was complaining that the uh, the plate was uneven and, and was too high. You know, and he complained before the game. So I somehow I found and, and saw, asked somebody from the front office i go bring me a ruler and I went out there with the ruler at home plate like this and I looked and I looked over at the I think it was the Angels dugout and I went like this he made his players turn around and face the back wall you know so uh, you know you could kind of get in their skin a little bit in a in a friendly way I mean I never did anything uh, you know and um, and, and mostly the, the opposing teams are respectful you know and the umpires and and um it's funny because sometimes I'll listen to, uh, I was listening to, uh, I think it was the 92-3 uh, the other day, and they were talking about the baseballs that are used for a game. And I never call into those shows because it just, you know, you got to wait too long to get in there. But they were talking about the baseballs and if they were shiny or this kind of thing. And, well, what they did at least then, and I think they still do, is the umpires would have all these big boxes of balls in, the, in their umpire room. And I know this because I had to go in there one time to deliver something to them. Because the front office had me do little things here and there, you know, filling out all-star ballots and things like that where I would go in. And so they said, Ron, can you take this to the umpire room? And they're all in. They get these big boxes, and they got this jar of some stuff. It's called mud. You know about this. A lot of people don't. And they rub these balls up before the game. I don't know. they still do that? Yeah. And, and so all these balls would be rubbed up with the mud because the original balls were just kind of slick. Yeah. And, and, um, and so uh, I would see things like that, but they were they were pretty respectful. And, uh, but I stayed out of their way too. I didn't, you know, I did some shtick and stuff like that, but I, I was there not as, par- as part of the game, I was there just in addition to the game, you know, and that was my role and I, I knew that, you know.
1: So then the, the changeover from 80 to 81, I mean, yeah. it's kind of, yeah, hey, you want to do this for another year, kind of year by year basis, or I mean, it went well enough that they said, all right, let's uh, keep it going?
0: So that's a great question. And it's another, you know, there have been a couple of articles written about this. And, you know, the, the, the headline on one was, you know, the worst mascot in the history of baseball and all this kind of thing. and. And actually, I, I read one one time. This is a few years back, and it was full of inaccuracies. And so I contacted the author, and he says, I'm so glad you called, you know, you, you emailed me. I had no idea about any of this, you know. And he wrote another article that was more accurate, okay. And one of the things that was a question is, okay, why did they get rid of this mascot? it was only in 1881. First of all, in 81 I graduated from grad school. It was before I went to law school, but I grad school, and I got a job with, at the time with National City Bank, which, by the way, was interesting because when I went to interview for it, I interviewed with like seven people, and all they all wanted to talk about was the Indians and in my mascot days. So you know, I guess that probably got me the job there. You know, and I was there for ten years, but um, so. What had happened at the time was that obviously the Indians, you know, with their record and and failing attendance and all that, uh, were not financially well off at the time, and and how could they be, right? And so uh, 3WE was the radio station that broadcast the Indians game at the time. And from what I understand, okay, 3WE came to them and said, okay, we'll cut you these breaks or what have you, but we have this, now, now enter third mascot, Okay, duck, bug, and by the way, the second year was shortened from baseball bug to base bug. And I could tell you about that first day, which is kind of interesting, but let me finish the one thought. So they said, okay, we want our mascot to roam the stands, and that mascot's named Tommy Hawk. And we'll have the three WE call letters on the back. Front office came to me, probably Bobby D or one of the other guys that worked for him. Ron, can you do this next year? And I said, you know, I got a job at National City. Um, I really can't because I can't tell them, you know, I can only work half days or, because there were a lot of games that were afternoon games at the time. There's not that much today, but um, a lot of back-to-back double headers and things like that. So I said, I really can't do it, you know. And so somebody else did that. And so ended the, the, the baseball, baseball or whatever. wasn't anything else other than financial reasons. And, um, and so, uh, they came to me like partway through the next season and they called me and said, any way you can do this? We tried like, I don't know how many people and it's just not working. Nobody does it like you did it. I go, no, I, I'm sorry. I can't. At, at that time also, I got approached by the Cleveland force which was the soccer, indoor soccer team, for those that don't know, back in the day. And they wanted me to be Darth Vader. And just for the heck of it, I said, well, how much does it pay? Not that I could do it anyway. And they said, well, you can watch all the soccer games you want and get free food. And I'm like, well, I get free food at my parents' house. And uh, at the time, I was not at all a soccer fan. I developed into that as my son played soccer in school and high school and everything. And uh, yeah, but a lot of appreciation for that sport. Um, but so that's kind of how it ended um, for for that mascot and for me. And so.
1: you, you didn't keep the costume.
0: So um, no wonder you have the job you have. You ask great questions. So anyway, I um, I did keep the costume at first. Okay, I was like, well, I'm going to get some other usage out of this before they, you know. So it was Halloween of 81. No, 82 it would have been. Yeah, 82, no, Halloween of 80, 81, because it was after the season of 81. So Halloween of 1981, I wore that costume as my, as my, wore uh, that, that mascot outfit as my costume, you know. Shortly thereafter, the Indians called me and said, Ron, you know, we need, we need the costume back. And I said, okay, I mean, I, I, I get it, you know, what? why would I keep it anyway? And um, what's interesting is that now you segue to maybe, so that was what, 81? Maybe 15 years later, maybe not quite, maybe 10 years later. Um, I'm at the, uh, um, it's one of the malls downtown, uh, that, that, um, where a bunch of shops are and stuff. And, um, there is a memorabilia shop there. And right there in the front window of the memorabilia shop is that second year costume propped up like a mannequin. And it still had the, um, the duct tape around the shoe, because the shoe started cracking toward the end of the season, and my dad helped me put duct tape around the shoe, okay? But we weren't going to get new shoes in, in August, yeah. you know, And because um, like you said, those costumes are not cheap. And so uh, the duct tape my dad and I had put on there was still around that, and it was on sale for just under ten grand. My understanding is somebody, some memorabilia guy from uh, New York or so, bought that. And I don't know what happened to it after that. I have no idea what happened to the first-year costume, okay.
1: So, but that's what. Yeah, I think someone out in New York has the costume now. I remember seeing a Cleveland Yeah, scene I room. think you're right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, now, 81, were, you were at Lenny's Perfect Game. Do you remember much about that or just?
0: hear me? That was maybe maybe second to what happened to me a few weeks ago at Captain Stadium, but most surreal moment of my life. Because you think about it, at that time, I believe there were eight perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball. And think about, since the 1800s, how many games had been pitched? I mean, tens of thousands of games had been pitched. And this was the eighth time this happened? And I had already seen a no-hitter back in the late 70s with Dennis Eckersley was on Memorial Day of like 77 or something like that. And uh, I was in the stands for that one. But this was the most surreal moment as every inning went along, I was like, no, this is not going to happen. if you listen to the announcers, I think it was um, uh, Bruce Drennan at the time uh, was a big announcer and by the way, phenomenal, phenomenal guy. And Nev Chandler interviewed me a few times. He was one of the announcers and unfortunately died of cancer, but uh, phenomenal human being. And, um, so, uh, this is happening and unfolding and I'm like, okay, between innings, I get on the dugouts and I like get the people going I still did my slide and all that. Um, it was George Orta, I believe, hit a home run in that game and I was down on there giving him the five, but otherwise like when Barker was up pitching, I crouched down and I stayed out of everybody's sight. And I was just, it was, you know, and then when Manning caught that third out in the ninth inning, I just sprinted on the field with everybody else. And if you watch the video, I'm out there and it was just surreal. And at one point, even, I don't know if it was a grounds crew or wasn't one of the players, was holding me on his shoulders. And I was going like this to the crowd. And then I remember sitting in the, um, there was a, a, a place called the Wigwam at the time. And the Wigwam was a place where before the game, everybody would have, like, a dinner. All the announcers were in there. Uh, I got some good story about that, too. But all the announcers were in there, and they let me eat in there as well. And um, I remember us, I showered up and everything at the game, and we're all sitting around having a drink. And there were, even the guys were there from, like, out of town and everything like that, you know. Uh, and it was, I believe, against the Toronto Blue Jays, and there was guys in there from Toronto, and we're all just like, can you believe what we just witnessed? This just doesn't happen, you know. And... um and they just swarmed Barker. And if you segue back to now when I was living in Newbury, Ohio, and I was at a parish, a small parish, Catholic parish called St. Ellen's, uh, ends up Lenny Barker was a member of that parish. And, and so I went up to him, you know, and said, hey, remember, you remember everything, you know, obviously one of the biggest days of his life. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just a s- completely surreal moment.
1: And then the strike happens, um, were you worried about, you know, your, your job with the, the club as a mascot or did you kind of, you kept busy during the strike? Didn't you, you were technically a player so you could do. Yeah.
0: Right. So I, I did some promos at the time and the strike was, I don't know if it's the beginning of the season or toward the beginning of the season. It lasted until like, like a month and a half or something like that, or maybe two months. I don't know. It was quite a while. And um, that was the year that the All-Star Game was going to be in Cleveland, okay? So uh, interesting story about that. It was during the strike. I get a call from Good Morning America, and it was one of the producers. It says, Ron, this is so-and-so from Good Morning America. We are going to have a segment on the morning show, and you're going to be there with, I don't know who the two main hosts were at the time, but the, the main hosts. We're going to have a segment with you and Wild Bill Hagee. Wild Bill Hagee at the time was a guy with crazy hair. He didn't really dress up as anything, but he would wave things around, and he was a whatever you want to call him. You can't really call him a mascot for the Baltimore Colts. Okay, so he'd be at their games, and they'd you know, show him on TV. We're going to have you and Wild Bill Hagee on. Now, unlike probably almost any mascot that ever existed, I talked. I was not silent because I got a big mouth, you know, I like to talk. So, right from the beginning, when I was the Indians mascot, I talked. That's kind of, kind of knew that, too. And so um, they said, We're going to pick you up. Uh, You fly to New York, we're going to pick you up, put you at the San Maritz Hotel, and at 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning or whatever it is, we're going to pick you up, bring you to the studio, you're going to change, and then you're going to be on the segment with, with these hosts, you know. My stuff was packed, it was a half hour to go. I get a call from Good Morning America. There's been a flare-up in Ireland and we have to cancel pretty much our entire show on Wednesday and replace it with everything about that. So my national fame was gone right there, but that night they, you know, uh, Dateline was just pretty new. Dateline actually started when there was the Iranian hostage crisis in the late 70s. And, and so, and then it went on from there. and. Um, and they came to Cleveland Stadium, and on the day that the All Star game, I believe, was supposed to be played, okay, they had a crew there, and they had this Stratomatic baseball game, which was a board game, you know. And they had like fifty fans in the stands, like right behind it, and everything. And they had me there goofing off and all this kind of stuff, and you know, you know, getting the fans going, and uh, and that was on actually on Dateline that night. And so um, there was my national TV exposure right there. But, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what happened with, during the strike. And then they, they, um, they decided like the second half of the season would start. And they started the second half of the season with the All-Star game. But that All-Star game, <coughs> they were not having any mascots at all at that game. And so they said, Ron, we're gonna give you really good seats. And I took my dad, you know, and um, but we're not gonna have a a, a mascot. so. Bumped about that? I mean, that been- a little bit, you know. I mean, uh, I was like, oh, it'd be great to be, but if I understood, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think, I'm not sure if it was, it would have been in Philly or in Pittsburgh with the Pirate Parrot or any of that, if they would have had, you know, any of that. Now, at one point, um, you know, there was a, a mascot out there and everybody was known probably all over the world called the, the um, San Diego Chicken, who then. Got his independence from the Padres and became the Chicken, okay. Um, and they hired him to do a game at Cleveland Stadium. And uh, his name is Ted Juneolus. And I met him before the game. He was a decent guy. And and um, so I'm out there doing my thing on the on the uh, the day before, on the dugout. This is my second year. And uh, and he comes out there and you get the fans going. And I kind of go like this to him. And not anything. <laughs> he comes in and he goes. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to do anything, you know, and then he was, he was really good at what he did, you know, and then he did the next game. So other than that game, uh, that's, that's I think the only game that I was off that season. And um, that was because obviously he was, he was there, but uh, um, yeah, there was, there was all kind of other things. I mean, um, if you just want to get into some of
1: the other uh, stories, are you asking? Yeah, me. that uh, I wanted to. Do too, um, yeah, you mentioned Lake County a few times. Was it kind of surreal to see the costume? I mean, it's obviously a, a new, updated version, but I mean, how close to you know your memory was it when you saw it in real life again? Was that a, a kind yeah. of surreal moment or?
0: Yeah, so Jacob out there, he's he, you know he works for the team and incredibly a talented guy. You know, and um, when he told me I'm building your first year costume with a baseball bug. I said, okay, you know, because, I mean, look at this thing. Yeah. I mean, who, who's going to build that? Oh, man, it was almost spot on. You know, I, I even told him, I said, Jake, you did a phenomenal job with this thing. You know, but I guess he's an engineer by trade as well, so now I work for the team. and um, But that was a surreal moment because I got there and, um, you know, I, uh, I got to bring a few people in with me who... Get in there for free, you know. And so, uh, two of them were my, my um, sister in law from Florida and my niece, uh, which was her daughter, and they came up and come in. And I went into the front office area, you know, and these people were treating me like I was the second coming of LeBron James, you know. And my niece goes, Uncle Ron, what's all this? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't know, you know. And so, and then Diego came with the costume, and I go, Man. That is awesome, I mean, what he did. And then, so, yeah, it was surreal because, you know, the game, I guess, was a sellout, but it wasn't full because it was threatening rain, which it ended up getting rained out in the second inning. But before the game, um, they had the Eastlake North High School band out there. Then they had fireworks. They had a few other people throwing first pitches. And then it was my turn last, and this announcer is, like, building me up as, like, one of the great, legendary characters in Cleveland sports history, and they had stuff on the Jumbotron and all this. And I'm just looking around going, what? <laughs> you know, and then uh, I went throw the first pitch, and, and I had made this out with Jacob in the costume. He says, you know, I'm going to catch it. I go, well, I'm not going to throw it. I probably won't make it there because, you know, I mean, even Travis Kelsey threw it into the ground. He's one of the best athletes in, yeah. in the world, you know. And uh, so I said, I'm going to roll it to you. And so I went like this and I turned around, I rolled it like a bowling ball, went right over the plate, which was pretty good. And then I signed an hour's worth of autographs of that picture I showed you before, you know? And uh, surreal. The whole thing to me was surreal moment, you know? And, um, and I appreciate them doing that The One of the owners came down and you know, he's, he's like, you know, we have a celebrity in the house. I'm like, who walked in, you know? Um, so yeah, was that surreal? Was the costume great? Perfect. I mean, he did such a
1: fantastic job. Were there people there that remembered you from the 80s? I mean, Yes,
0: yes. Most, no, because, I mean, it was 40-some years ago. You know, um, unless you were born probably before, like, 1975, you would have no idea, um, unless you saw things in archives or something. You know, it was only there for two years, so, um, you know, it wasn't exactly the longest, you know, how long... Slider's been there with thirty or something like that. An
1: era so, where they weren't uh, too successful either. So. And and
0: and you know, I always said that if I were um, on a team that was really good, or like I I, I did a um, it's my second year. I did it in um, in Pennsylvania. I did a Pittsburgh-Cleveland rally. Okay, it was combined with Pittsburgh and Cleveland, and it was in Sharon, Pennsylvania. And so for uh, they had a bunch of athletes there. Like Bob Feller was there. My grandfather took a picture with Bob Feller. You'd think he was going to pass out, you know. Not Bob, my grandfather. Um, and uh, because Bob Feller was a legend to all of sports, you know. And, um, and so, uh, so they had uh, myself, I was the only mascot from Cleveland. And then from Pittsburgh you had the Terrible Towel, the Steeler Stinger, and the Pirate Parrot. And I was talking the Pirate Parrot, and just I think a year or two before, a couple years, I think maybe 79, they won the World Series. We Are Family with Dave Park and all those guys, and he was telling me, he had this big ring, you know, and I'm like, God, that would be great to have one of those, you know, and, um, and so I actually have pictures of myself doing the polka with the master ceremonies, which was Rocky Blyer, and Rocky Blyer is legendary, and, you know, he saved lives in Vietnam and, and got the, I believe, the Purple Heart or whatever, and uh, phenomenal guy. And um, so he's dressed in a leader hosen, and I went out done a costume. Well, unfortunately, uh, I had a dance to the Pittsburgh Steeler polka or whatever it was, you know. And um, and my dad's from Pittsburgh or was from Pittsburgh, so I, all my relatives are there. But uh, yeah, that was that was also kind of a surreal moment too, um, with all these guys and um, you know and and meeting the people. But uh, yeah, so
1: it was. It was a lot of fun. You didn't try on Jacob's costume, did you? Or
0: I did not. Okay. No, I didn't want to get, you know, uh, you know PTSD or anything. Well he, he put it on, Jacob put it on, and we're signing autographs there. He was signing next to me, and it was like the second inning, and he goes, man, I'm dying in this costume. This thing is so hot. I go, try wearing that for a nine-inning game in 90-degree weather and for 81 games plus per year. And then he took it off, and he was bleeding in part, you know, and stuff like that. And and uh, he, uh, I think, appreciated what it was like with that first year. And the second year wasn't much better. Yeah. Because it was just hot. I ran a 10K in this second year costume. Oh, it was the least that Revco used to sponsor a 10K in Cleveland. And I said, you know what? I'm going to run that in my costume. You know. And this is I had done a little bit later in life. I did triathlons and stuff like that. So. This was, uh, which was like uh, 30 years and 40 pounds ago. Anyway, um, so I put this costume on. The only thing different was I wore a pair of running shoes. Yeah. I couldn't wear running these. I did the 6.2 miles and finished in front of Cleveland State, which is, by the way, where I had been working. And I basically had to drag me to the side and give me, take off the head and give me water and splash my face. and but um, I got a little bit of publicity out of it. You know, anything for pub. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um,
1: but yeah, I love any other stories you have about your, your time as the bug, and uh, you know, I'm, we kind of covered the, the time span, but anything, you know, I've missed or anything you want to get on Yeah, yeah,
0: so, so the first year, you know, you asked me about the costume the first year. Okay, now comes the second year. And I said, you know, I got to do something out of the ordinary when they announce, here's the new and improved, baseball bug now called the base bug. So this girl that I knew, I, her brother had a uh, had a, a mini bike. And so I borrowed his mini bike and I put like firecrackers coming off of it. And I started in the left hand, the, the left field corner, came out of that little fence area back in the old stadium. And I got on this bike and I rode it all the way around the stadium with the stuff flaring out of the back, ditched the bike, ran over, Jumped up and Joe Charbonneau, who the year before had been Rookie of the Year, caught me, okay? And then, you know, people were cheering and everything. Again, first game, 70,000 people in that old stadium. Principal's office, he's our Rookie of the Year. What are you doing? You could injure him, you know? And Joe, uh, by the way, I got a chance a couple times later in life to play golf with him. And and again, I mean, I know this sounds like a broken record, but a fantastic human being. And you know, he was crazy. We loved it, you know. It said he opened his eye opened bottles with his eye socket and stuff like that and I saw some of that, but he he just a fun guy. Just was awesome. And um he obviously didn't have the second year he had the first year, so my friends would ride me and say, Your fault, Ron, your fault <laughs> you know. Which you know. But uh so that was another thing that happened that first game. And I was much more comfortable first game and I was able to do like now I could do real flips and everything off of a springboard and, and a lot more. Um, I, I came out, used to come out once in a while as Bugdini. I made a uh, like a, a magician's hat with a magician's, uh, like a, a, another jersey that said Bugdini on it. And I would like, you know, take, you know, put, you know, uh, pull hankies out of people's pockets that were really in my sleeve and like tap them on the shoulder and the head and all stuff like that. and just anything that would elicit a reaction from the crowd, you know. And um, signing autographs, uh, a lot of autographs. One time we said, let's try to do autographs in between two games of a doubleheader. I said, okay, that's cool, and we went out into the concourse. And I'm thinking, like, there won't be that many people in line for, you know. And I don't know if it was half hour, 45 minutes between games. I was signing the autographs the whole time. The kids loved this. You know, and it's really a lot for the for the kids, and they were great, and, and uh, most of the promos that I did had something to do with children, either baseball leagues or, you know, even in the malls. I had some stints in some malls and stuff, like the one you showed me here, Westgate. Um, um, oh, the big one that's closed now on the east side, uh, Randall Park Mall, I did for like five days in a row once, okay, and um, that was when it was... Pretty new, you know. I got that gig because a buddy of mine was assistant mall manager, you know, and he says, "Can you come out here and you know we'll pay and all this kind of thing." So um, there was all that, um, you know. I, I just uh, it was a very uh, special two years for me, um, and there would be times where it was like between games of a doubleheader, and I'd be sitting down right by the dugout or by the uh, inside the, the locker room and the trainers would come over and they'd be giving me like um, salt pills and things like that because I mean I was thin back then and I could lose like 10 pounds a game sometimes with this with you know how, how warm it was out but you know the show must go on <laughs> so um, other than that I'm trying to think of any other uh, things that happen of note I mean so much happened you know but uh, I I Uh, I would, um, I used to play a lot of softball, and so I remember one time we were playing the Mariners, and and my softball uniform was all powder blue, which is the same as a Mariners outfit. So I remember coming to the game just at the last, not the last minute for the game, but last minute for me to get there so I could change and everything like that. There were already fans milling around, and now they're starting to ask for my autograph. I'm like, okay, player's not going to come in from the, parking lot in his uniform but they don't know you know and so I said no I'm not a player and a couple times I would be coming out after taking a shower and um I think maybe I looked a little like Tom Veriser who was the shortstop at the time you know I and uh they would ask for my autograph and I go sorry guys I'm not a player sure you're not sure you're not you know know, I'm, I'm honest I'm not you know I mean so uh that was kind of funny some of that stuff but um yeah I mean it was um you know, it was just pretty, pretty interesting couple of years, and, and uh, I'm trying to think of any other of promos that were interesting. You know, a lot of different ones, but most of them were pretty, pretty uh, run-of-the-mill, and but all special because the people are. You know, you may do a lot of these, okay, but for them, that's the only time they're going to have a mascot come to their facility or their baseball game or their whatever it might be, you know. And um, so you try to make that special for everybody. Um, and I, you know, listen, after I was done with it, I kind of missed it. But, you know, I knew I had to move on. And, you know, so did they, you know, with the mascot itself, the costume. So, but
1: anyway. Well, that's great. That was
0: uh, great. Yeah. Um You've been listening to Cleveland's team a baseball history podcast with Guardians team historian Jeremy Fedor.